Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoor Country Talk. Pooh boy, what's happening with you, man? Man, just trying to keep the flow of life going. We are. We are. I think we may be on the tail end of this old uh, COVID-19. I keep hearing some uh, some startups of some businesses and all that stuff coming here pretty quick. Hopefully it comes on real quick. Um, I think the, looking at the world economy and different things that are going on that we need to get back to some simulation of a norm fairly oh, man, soon. Tell me about it. But I know with what? everything that's going on, all the high school kids that are, you know, possibly either having a backup graduation ceremonies or missing proms, you know, and, and that's not even to look at the medical end of it. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll be oh, glad no to see doubt, it man. get back to and and really interested to see what the new norm is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I don't. I think a lot of things the uh, the normal it may not be normal anymore, and you know it can. We can only hope it's for the it's for the better, but uh, we'll see, man. We'll see. But uh, yeah, we got a good uh, we got a good show lined up for tonight. I'm pretty excited about it. I think this guy's gonna gonna give us a little bit of. You know, maybe a little bit of different different perspective on the on the hunting world and and how to go about it. You know, from from his from his point of view and with the show that that they have, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Well, you know, I thought about this just a little while ago, but you know, he may be our first foreign guest. I know he's not foreign now, but yeah, he's 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 a Mississippi guy, but uh, but yeah. Yeah, he and uh, I think he could probably tell us a little bit a little bit about you know where he's from and kind of how he landed here in the in the great state of Mississippi. <laughs> we'll have to see if that was a landed or a crash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's probably got his own opinion about that, but I bet he uh, I bet he's willing to share it. Jacob, go ahead and introduce who we got tonight. Y'all, tonight we have Robbie Kroger with Blood Origins on with us tonight, and I'm not sure. Robbie, are you still there? I am here. I am here. I'm laughing, chuckling away behind the scenes. <laughs> Look, we we told you before the show started. We we try to have fun, no matter what we're doing at this. So you know, uh, entertainment value is always a plus with us. It's not always that serious most of the time. Well, it's funny. the uh, The whole idea of landing in Mississippi is it harkens back to when I was in South Africa and I was explaining to folks that. I'm going. I'm coming to the states. I'm coming to Mississippi to do a PhD, and the natural first reaction was, "Why?" <laughs> uh, the second was, "Well, where is Mississippi?" And for the first couple of answers, I couldn't answer them. I knew that <laughs> New York was on the east, and I knew California was on the west, and that there was a bunch of states in between, and Mississippi was one of them. And if you had asked me if Mississippi was a coastal state, at that point, I would have struggled to know the answer. <laughs> Robbie, I hate to tell you this. We have people in Mississippi that can't answer that. <laughs> I, uh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Uh, he's, he's probably found a few of those people. I, I know some folks in the Delta <laughs> that think that the only beach that runs down below Mississippi is Orange Beach, you know, down at 
they don't they're not positive that there's a a gulf that touches the state of Mississippi anywhere down there so well Robbie tell me this how now you have your PhD you you came to Mississippi went to Mississippi State we talked about that earlier and your PhD is in what so my PhD is technically in biology I got my PhD from Ole Miss that's where I landed I landed at Ole Miss, Oxford, Mississippi in 2003. I actually landed in Aberdeen, Mississippi in 2003. Um, arrived in June, well, June 4th, 2003. And I didn't have a car, didn't have a bike, didn't have anything. And I stuck out at this field station, the Ole Miss field station. Uh, four days later, I got introduced to New Orleans for a week. Uh, that was a very enlightening experience. Mm, I can only imagine. Um, and uh, then I spent the summer in at the field station, and really, I had to. It was a tough first three months, man. It was I almost almost decided I needed to go back to South Africa because I didn't have a vehicle. I didn't know, I didn't know anyone, and didn't realize where I was going to be living. And I was living in almost like a little trailer on the field station. And everyone would come to work in the mornings, and then everyone would go home at 5 o'clock, and I'd be left there. Um, I remember one night, I was sitting in my cabin, you know, I, I had to ask people, hey, can I go to the grocery store to get groceries and stuff like that? I remember eating and just watching, I was doing stuff on the internet, I'd watch TV on the internet, because that's all I had. And um, there was this, like, crazy crazy storm and I'm, I'm used to pretty crazy storms in south africa we get thunderstorms every afternoon in the summer so i was i was it was just a it was really powerful it was just like the winds were crazy the rain was crazy anyway i just i went to bed and woke up the next morning everyone arrived to work and they're like man did you hear the the tornado sirens and I was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, a tornado. It was, it was identified touchdown nearly, you know, really close by. And I looked at everyone. I said, did you forget that I was out here by myself? <laughs> and I was, you know, I was just, this is, you know, brand new. Two months <laughs> in. Anyway, uh, long story short, PhD at Ole Miss. I uh, was uh, lucky enough to become a professor at Mississippi State uh, for six years. Then I was I left Mississippi State uh, to be the chief scientist for the new federal council that got brought out of the BP oil spill. I uh, did that role for a year and then uh, was hired in the role that I'm in right now, which is the chief scientific officer of a small consulting company on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Okay. Robbie, I gotta I gotta ask this because there's usually one side or the other, and I'm sure you figured this out. Mm. Are you are you an Ole Miss fan or are you a Mississippi State fan? You know what? It's a, a lot of people ask me those questions. And if you had seen me at Ole Miss, I never really wore red and blue representing Ole Miss. I wore green and gold representing South Africa because it was the it was the way for me beyond my accent for me to get recognized in the Grove. And uh, it, you know when I when you get down to the heart of it um, and who I am and being now a very uh, big outdoorsman and hunter and whatnot, so, uh, there's this the saying that I, I've almost adopted that 
you know, you're either with the folks that like to wear North Face jackets to a football game or you're with the people that like to wear camouflage to a football game. <laughs> I, I tend to be with the folks that go with the camouflage for a football game. And so I'll let you decide who's who. I'm, I'm with you is all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> but I have both. I have both running in my blood, so technically I could support both. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, Robert, tell me we, this. Uh, the, uh, now, did you grow up hunting and fishing and, and being in the outdoors, or was that something developed later? How how did you kind of get involved there? Yeah, so uh, the, honestly, the answer is very little, very little hunting, very little fishing growing up. Um, we lived in Johannesburg, eight and a half million people, so it's it almost like being raised in New York or Los Angeles or something like that. And even though my grandfather and my father were huge hunters back in the day, you know, given the revolution that occurred in Mozambique in the, in the mid-70s and sort of gun control efforts in South Africa and obviously our, the geography of where we lived, hunting was just not an option. There was no talk of it. There was no suggestion of it. There was no decision on my grandfather and father to say, hey, let's take the boys hunting. It just wasn't an option. And I don't know if it was because they were too busy with, with work. That could definitely have been the case. My dad was a very much a workaholic like I am. Um, or it was just like the paradise that they had witnessed in Africa, that they, like my grand, that my dad as a teenage boy got to live through my grandfather. Those paradises were gone. You know, they, in Mozambique specifically, there was no wildlife left. Been pretty much taken out, taken out of the landscape by poverty and by a civil war. And so what was left was fishing. Uh, we used to go and visit my grandparents in Mozambique during most holiday times, and we would go fishing then, you know, for, for deep-sea fishing or, or, or sound fishing, estuary fishing, river fishing. We always used to go to the mountains to fish for trout, um, and that was about it. I did two hunts, if you could call them hunts, when shooting pigeons in sunflower fields with my grandfather and father when I was 16. But that was it, man. It was, uh, I had one period of my life, of my young childhood that I was very somehow interested in hunting. I'd read all of my grandfather's stories. I was, I was just about to turn 16 years old. I read Robert Ruach's Old Man and the Boy, which is such a you know classic southeastern book. Jeremy and Jacob, have you guys read that book? I have not. I'm actually writing it down now. You need yeah, I, to. I haven't either. Oh, jeez, you guys, come on! You're just you're breaking my heart here. Um, Robert Ruach's Old Man and the Boy is about Ruach's grandfather teaching him, Robert Ruach, all about southeastern hunting and fishing. It's all about bird dogs and quail and deer and uh, saltwater fishing and brim fishing and bass fishing and raising a dog. And it's told by the, from the eyes of, the, of the, the grandson of him as a kid. And the, the stories are incredible. But when I read it at 15 or 16, obviously I didn't understand it because I didn't understand America and didn't understand American hunting. But I had an, an, an idea then that I wanted to go hunting with my grandfather, and I broached it with him to go hunting. And at that time, he wrote, uh, he type wrote a letter to me in 1992. I've still got it today. 
and the, the letter writes, says, Dear Robbie, I'm glad you came to hunting on your own accord. Otherwise, I would have been labeled as leading you astray. It's almost like his comedic humor in it. And then he followed on the statement by saying, uh, it must be that hunting is, quote unquote, in, in the blood. And uh, we never really, we never went on that hunting trip. We went to the Okavango Delta, and you know, if you think about the Lord and the Lord's fingerprints and everything, the Okavango Delta is pretty much the biggest wild swamp area that you can find on the planet. And I got to experience it as a 16-year-old boy, and fell in love with what swamps and wetlands was, which led me to my PhD at Ole Miss, which led me to my professorship at Mississippi State, which led me to where I'm sitting today. Awesome. So, I mean, you you know, or, or you know the origin of, of of where it all started for you. That's pretty. That's pretty neat. Especially since yeah, hundred percent. You know, now with it on each of your shows, you know, somewhere in there, you know, it's always usually towards the end. You know, where it's it's in the blood. So you bring <laughs> part of the letter with you each time, or each episode. Yeah. And since you yeah, know the origin of where it's interesting that you say that. It's uh when we started when we started Blood Origins, when we decided that this was something I wanted to do. I had to one find the best cameraman I could find for the very little money that I had. And I found this guy, super talented individual, Drew Seals, who's now doing just amazing things. We're trying to figure out how we're going to end this, and we started bantering things back and forth. And unbeknownst to everyone, and unbeknownst to you two, we actually have a, a, a very deep-seated connection now. You said that uh, you know you were asked to replace Will Primos at the Mississippi Extravaganza, and that sets you on your trajectory of infamy, right? <laughs> well, let, let's actually Close. set that straight. We we filled in the time slot he was supposed to be in. We weren't actually asked to fill in for him. We, we were just filling in the same time slot. I mean, slot. you can look at you it either way. You can say it how you... How, <laughs> I like to look at the, through the lens that I just painted. So okay. if you're okay with that, I'll, I'll, I'll run with that. Go for it. And, um, well, similarly... When we first started this project, it was not called Blood Origins. It was called In the Blood because of that letter. And when I showed Will Primos the original pilot of my episode, episode one, season one, episode one, the interview part of that, the first thing he did when he turned to me, and I knew we had something, I knew that we had film something in a way that he had never seen before. He turned to me and he goes, one, he was very curious to how we filmed it. And then two, he said, do you own it? And I said, oh, I've got all the trademarks. I've got all these. I'm, I'm working on all these things. And he goes, no, 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 no. Who else has in the blood in the name? And there were two people that were in the space that had in the blood. There was this guy in California called Fire in the Blood. He was two weeks ahead of me in the trademark process. 
And then there was this 12-year-old kid out of Wisconsin called In the Blood Outdoors that uh, was going to be the next greatest thing, according to what I read about him. <laughs> but uh, so if you think about it, because it was called In the Blood, that was why we ended the way that it's ending. It, the way that it ends is everyone has their own story. Jeremy, you have your own story. Jake, you have your own story. Robbie, I've got my own story. Everyone has their own story. This is mine. It's in the blood. That's why it's like that. And when we changed the name to Blood Origins, I had already recorded three episodes. And I was like, well, we're stuck with it because I can't go back and recreate what we filmed. And... That's 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 a bit of insight that a lot of a lot of people don't know about. Um, that that's why the ending is the way that it is, and it also you're you're right. It, it takes a bit of my grandfather's letter with every episode, and it connects every episode because everybody says the exact same thing, regardless of if you're Jim Shockey or if you're Polly Anderson. That's awesome. I mean, that was what, when you first said that, it was like, okay, so he, you, you took a piece of your grandfather's letter and, and moved it forward with you. And that way you've always, I mean, that's carrying on a tradition, um, or, or starting a tradition, carrying it forward. So, and you have, you know, kind of moving forward here a little bit, you have interviewed some huge, I mean, y'all, y'all, some of the episodes are some of the biggest names in the outdoors, whether you're a big game, small game, you name it, you've had some, some, I guess some of the most, I would say most influential people in the industry. Yeah, I think we needed to do that. I didn't do it to get the choir. A lot of people say that, that. Oh, you've got the Will Primus of the world. You've got the Jim Shockey of the world. You've got the Cuz Strickland. You got that because you wanted to be famous in the hunting space. So I was like, I, it, it really wasn't that. It was because I needed those names to give me legitimacy. If those big names said to, if they were like, yes, we're 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 willing to be on your platform. And and I don't know. Again, this is something I've never actually actually told anyone. Uh, and I don't know how many people know about this or not. But a lot of people would expect the bigger names to want to be paid to do something, right? You would expect that. Like I'm going to be on a show. Jim Shockey is going to be on a show. You know, that's his. It's his brand. It's a Jim Shockey brand, and Jim Shockey needs to get paid to to put Jim Shockey's name on something. Correct. Would think so. Yeah. So in this, from, from our perspective, we were very clear to everyone and anyone, even even if you're not famous, like this isn't a, a pay-for gig kind of deal. Like you want to do this because of the, the reason why we're doing it. And that reason is that we're trying to put a different narrative around why we hunt into a space, into a digital space that is not for the hunter. It is for the non-hunter. And I say that very specifically. I didn't say it's for the anti-hunter because the anti-hunter will always be the anti-hunter. It's just you're never going to change their minds. 
it's just like, you know, they have a belief and that's just what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. But it's for the big American voting bloc that sits in the middle that doesn't hunt that we currently, through Fish and Wildlife Service statistics, have about an 86% approval rating with. And so if we can continue to dump content into that space that shows what hunting is, that 86% will stay. If we start dumping content of us, you know, wholesale slaughtering white-tailed deer and laughing about it and, you know, what did those kids do? Like kick the deer and yada, yada, yada. That's the type of content that takes our approval rating down. So, yeah, we've 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 we filmed some we've still filmed some big names, but ideally, I'd like to be filming big names outside of the hunting space. You know, I want the big mainstream guys. I want the Guy Fieri of the world. You know, Guy Fieri is a mm-hmm. massive hunter. I did not know that. Diners, drive-ins, and dive. His RV yeah. that he drives around in is wrapped in QU camo. Did not know that. Chris Pratt, huge hunter, 35 million people on Instagram, social, you know, social media platform. You know, there's so many of them out there. We just, uh, we, we're, we're slowly climbing into that space now. And um, that's where we want to live. We want to live in that mainstream space. So, I guess you're taking from from where you're you, you started off in the hunting industry, and you're mm-hmm. but mainstream hunting and moving into still in the hunting industry, but more mainstream media or no no mainstream people think mainstream about mainstream pe- people right so the hunting choir is the three of us you probably when we put jeff Rowley's episode out you probably never heard of jeff Rowley before right i had not jeff Rowley is a professional skateboarder that is what he's known for that is his community 250,000 people on Instagram following him because he's a skateboarder, not because he's a hunter, but he is a diehard hunter. That's what I mean by mainstream. Well, I think hunting's not mainstream. And I think that kind of, you know, telling it or, or, or expressing, you know, what you're looking for kind of goes with, you know, what you have on, you know, your Instagram story about a storytelling project, you know, showcasing the heart of our hunting culture. You know, I think, you know, I think you're pretty much expressing, you know, what you mean by that. That's correct. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. And a lot, and that's why I think, you know, up until now, that hunting culture has been pretty much bracketed within our hunting industry. You get the odd celebrity talking about hunting, but that's about it. Well, there's a bunch of people out there, and and even in the food space now, there's a bunch of big chefs that uh, Bradley own. I think he's got like three quarters of a million people following him. Huge uh, organic 
gatherer, hunter gatherer kind of guy and very happy to talk about it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the kind of messaging that we're, that we're moving towards. We're, we're moving towards, we just want to be, we want to be storytellers. And I think the other thing that's, that I think sets us apart is the ability to tell stories in such a way that when people listen to it, they don't think it's fake, right? They, they, they can feel the authenticity behind that person talking or that when you watch that person interact with the camera, whether it's, you know, somebody like we just, we just, uh, we're doing a little outfitter video series right now. And I had a girl from New Zealand do a little selfie video for me. Her name's Rachel Stewart about COVID and how it's affecting the New Zealand hunting industry right now. Super simple video in her face, yet you can feel like her heartbreaking through that video. That's the difference, right? There's the authenticity of who we are as hunters. It's not fake. It's the real deal. It's transparent. It's vulnerable. It's these things that we're not supposed to be, quote unquote, as, as big macho hunters. That's what's been missing. Robbie, I watched that one, and, you know, a lot of folks, you know, if they hear, oh, a guide service is, is suffering with the lack of travel or, you know, yada, yada, you know, whatever they've got going on, it's not, and I'm not sure a lot of folks, and I hope our listeners do get this, it's not just about the economics. Yes, are they are they missing some paychecks, but they're also missing the camaraderie of of getting to hang out and visit with the hunters and the the stories and the the experiences but each one of these outfitters has a certain number of animals that they for herd health to harvest each year and i don't know if a lot of people get that you know they're you know they have management programs in place and if if the animals aren't being taken then something else is going to you know Mother Nature is going to get them one way or another. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, I'll say two things. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about two different models. New Zealand is a, is a is a good model, and the African model is a good one, and, and that's why we've sort of paired them one up against one another. So, in New Zealand, you're right. It's an outfitter. It's a beautiful game lodge. Will they be able to make it through this season and into next? Absolutely, right. Shouldn't feel bad for them economically. But it's not, as you said, it's not the economics that is what's hurting them so much. It's the people, right? The people that are engaged that they can't hire right now. The skinners, the guides, the chefs, the wait staff, the maids, the people who get the protein, the community, the local communities that receive the protein from the hunters. There's so there's such a domino effect from one single domino, which is the hunter not arriving, there's such a domino effect downstream that, and, and again, this is another one of our, it, one of the reasons why we're highlighting this is it's one of the reasons why we've never been able to, sh- to convince people what hunting actually is because nobody is bothering to tell or show the dominoes that are downstream, the dominoes that do fall over in Africa specifically. 
the dominoes that are downstream because the hunter hasn't arrived are anti-poaching efforts aren't happening anymore. Again, the jobs, the people, the providers, right? The hunters are the providers. And so now all of a sudden you've got skinners and trackers and anti-poaching units and maids and chefs and all these people that rely on hunting. There's a statistic out of Zambia that one employee, one employed individual pretty much uh, has a dependent structure beneath it of 10 people. You talk about 100 employees, that's 1,000 individuals that are affected when a hunter doesn't arrive. And that's not to speak to the medical, not to speak to the protein that all of these individuals are getting just because a hunter is arriving with the revenue tied to these places. So, you know, the, the, the front line, you know, especially in, in Africa, the, you know, the soldiers, the warriors, we call, I call them soldiers, I call them warriors, the anti-poaching units that are on the front lines pretty much protecting wildlife still are out there regardless of revenue coming in or not because, number one, hunters love wildlife, right? We want to see wildlife flourish. We want to see wildlife expand. We're very selective in the value of that animal that we take through hunting so that we can generate those revenues. The It only takes a very short amount of time if not one season, to undo five or ten years worth of anti-poaching efforts to get an area ready to be sustainably utilized like a hunter would. It, it's, just, it's just an incredible... It, it's unfortunate. You know, I akin this COVID situation to essentially a hunting ban that's been put in place um, that everyone's threatening to do. You know, we've had regulations here in the United States that's threatening trophy import bans. The UK is threatening trophy import bans. The state of California is currently threatening trophy import bans. And we're living it right now. That That is the case. It is happening. And there are repercussions because of it. And I think we have to use, we have to use this time. You talk about, you know, coming out of what is this new normal. I think from our perspective, the message needs to be clearer. The message needs to be this is what we do day in and day out to protect wildlife. You say we don't protect wildlife. You say we don't give revenues to the communities. Well, here's the data just to show in a place in Zimbabwe where last year and the year before the community was receiving nearly a quarter of a million dollars due to hunting revenue. How much are they receiving this year? Zero. Sorry, I went off a little bit no, there. No, no, Sorry, I didn't but, even get on my soapbox. No, and my <laughs> thought is that quarter of a million dollars in that hunting community in, in Zimbabwe goes way further than it goes here. You know, cost of Hell living yeah. is a fraction. I travel a good bit, at nowhere near as amount that you do, but, you know, a lot of third world countries, you can buy, you know, $20, $100 goes can last you i mean you you can have a a week-long trip on little to nothing to what you would spend here to do something so the cost of living you know and what it takes for them to provide and to survive and and thrive is way 
way, way less than what it would be here. So that, that goes any loss of revenue in a lot of those folks. And not only that, but when you lose revenue, you were talking about the medical. You know, what does the quality of health care in these areas do? I mean, it's a it's an issue I don't know if a lot of people really realize that a lot of times the only revenue that comes into these areas is through the hunting community. 100%. 100%. Well, not only that, I mean, just talking about conservation here in this country, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's known that hunters are the biggest conservationists there are for protecting wildlife, for promoting habitat for wildlife. I mean, you you got all these organizations, you know, Delta Waterfowl, you know, Ducks Unlimited, you know, National Wild Turkey Federation, Whitetails Unlimited, you know, who who is giving to those organizations? It's not these anti, you know, hunters, the 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 rights activists and all this. This is it is us. It is the ones that, you know, are out there in the woods, you know, hunting these animals. We're the ones promoting their conservation. We're the ones promoting their well being, you know, their habitat, you know, we're the ones doing that. One hundred percent. Now, Robbie, but, when, when y'all do a show, kind of walk us through how long does it take you, and if you mm-hmm. don't mind, like when y'all started, when y'all first started doing Blood Origins, did you film for a day, film for two days, edit for a week? Kind of give us kind of how that's progressed. And Yeah. Well, I'll say this. I didn't know... I didn't know, this is how far we progressed. I didn't know what software you edited videos on. <laughs> so today I'm knocking out, you know, Adobe Premiere Pro videos pretty much every other night. <laughs> so, um, you know, we it was very much a trial and error um, scenario. And if you watch the first season carefully, we got we got on our horse, we got on our train pretty quickly in terms of, what it became. If you notice the first one, like my episode, we added a bunch of sound and audio and we found clips of like World War Two, and we did a bunch of stuff that was unnecessary. Um, so we typically film, it depends on the person, right? So if the person has B-roll that we can use, um, Typically, our interview process takes anywhere between, we've had a 15-minute session to a three-and-a-half-hour session. And it's all depending on how ready that individual is. Um, so I have learned through this process that I, I, I almost season every single person that we, we interview so about three weeks out, I start talking to them via email and text and just planting seeds about questions. And then can just, just I just want them to chew on things constantly. I want them to start thinking deeper and deeper and deeper. What they don't realize is that I'm not going to ask them any of the questions that I've sent them. So they've been really thinking about these questions. And then in the interview process, it's pretty much just a, a peeling of the onion layer, essentially. And uh, I have a way about doing it. Uh, it's no, it's nothing top secret. It's it's nothing proprietary. It's nothing really innovative at all. Really, my technique is is I listen. 
and I listen to exactly what they're saying so that when I see or find or hear the crack that I'm looking for, I can, I can push through that crack because I've listened to what they've said. And I can open that crack up a little bit and I can push my way into it and I can get them to tell me a little bit more about what that thing is. And that's how we start peeling onion layers. And some people are, are ready right away and they, they give us the gold immediately. Other people takes them an hour or two or a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now, like, again, the editing process in the beginning was very tedious. It took us weeks almost to cut an episode. And now we've just got our editing process down pat. So I'll, I'll rough cut an episode. I'll get an episode now that I know how to use Adobe and I know how to sync audio and I, mean, I know how to do all the stuff that a typical video editor does. I can sit with an episode and I can rough cut an episode to about 90%. Um, it's all audio done. The audio is perfect. Everything's good from my end. I just need now to send it to one of my editors to add B-roll, to add my narrative, and to add uh, all the little transitions and stuff like that. So they make it look really, really fancy. And uh, that process, you know, if we if you have to bundle it all together, the editing process on one of our episodes, it's probably a day's worth of work if you bundled it all together. Um, but it, it typically takes about a week um, if we pushed hard and, and, and got one out. Um, but it's 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 a joy because some of these episodes I filmed uh, a year ago, and I'm I'm reliving them again. And they will relive it because they can't remember what they say. A lot of these guys that we interview will will almost black out during the interview. They don't remember anything that they say. And when we bring the episode back to life, they almost are just like, wow, I can't believe I said all that. And, uh, and we put it together, obviously, in a, in, a, in a sequence that makes the most sense. So that's the process right now. And, and we've got a really down pat, like, how to, how to film. And, and, and I'll say one more thing. The filming process has changed and morphed a little bit. When before I was very much interested in the quantity of episodes, we'd go to Texas or go to Georgia and we'd film three episodes in a weekend. And so we'd bang them out, spend three hours with somebody, say thank you so much for pouring your heart out. So we used to be all about quantity over quality. So we'd go into Georgia, say, for instance, and we'd film like three episodes in a weekend. And... You know, we had arrived and we'd tell the person, all right, pour your heart out to us. And three hours later, we're like, all right, see ya. And we'd go on and we'd get on the road and go to the next one. Now we're more interested in just saying, let's spend some time with them. Let's spend two days with them, three days with them maybe, and just get to know them. And so because what's very important about getting to know them and getting them comfortable with us is well, the I think the beautiful thing about the project is that everyone we film becomes a part of our family. We've, we were creating this blood origins family. And the way that a lot of people ask the question, and you may have this question on your books, and so I'll go ahead and answer it. They're like, how do you pick 
right? That's a very common question to me. How do you pick who you, whose story you get to tell? And today, we have very few originators. I call them originators, which is somebody who I found that I feel like has a very good story that I want to explore. What The way that Blood Origins works now is that when once we've interviewed you, you know what we're about, you know why we do what we do, and so you're invested in us, you're invested in our project. And so I want you to tell me who we're going to go film next. So it becomes like this club. And so that person's going to vet whoever they're going to suggest next to us. They're going to make sure they're not idiots and they high moral standards, yada, yada, yada. And so that's where we're at right now. We're, we're into like second and third and even fourth node films now of people connecting us to people, connecting us to the next one, connecting us to the next one. And that's pretty cool. That is, you've got a referral program basically yeah. in place. They've, they've gone through the experience. They enjoyed it. Now, who do you think would enjoy this also? Who do you think would, you know, benefit from our program. I think that's wonderful. Exactly. Like I'll give you Polly. So Polly, um, Polly gave us two individuals and actually none of them have come to fruition yet. Uh, there was one of them we can't get a hold of. Well, we can, he's just a very busy man in Atlanta. The other one is he, she put me on to this family out of South Africa. Uh, his name is Craig Martins. And his father was the first professional hunter out of South Africa. And so Polly mentioned his name, connected me with his wife. Uh, we started talking. I found out that there was a book about Barcy Martins, Craig's dad. So I bought the book. I read the book. And then I connected with Craig. And then pretty much Craig and I developed a, a online – this sounds really bad. Craig and I developed this online relationship, essentially. And uh, – we just got to know each other, trusted each other, and whatnot. And now, Craig, when show season comes for Dallas Safari Club and Safari Club International, he comes over to the States and stays at our house. And it's awesome. And that's just the epitome of, of Blood Origins right there. Well, you know, when you said y'all slowed down, it, you, you went from trying to do multiple people in multiple days and, and just kind of get get the content, get it quick. You've gone now where you're building better, I guess, better groundwork, better relationships. You know, we talk about it on here all the time, building friendships that will last a lifetime through something that we all love, whether it's hunting or fishing or just being in the outdoors, period. You know, um, Jeremy and I have been on a group chat for years in it's something every day, but it's always, you know, somewhere around there, somebody's going to get around to asking a question about something, something pertaining to the outdoors. Now it may be about a beachfront condo on one point or, you know, it, it, uh, it, it just, it's a whole vast array of topics. Some we can have on the radio, some we can't talk about on the radio, but, <laughs> and that's to, to me, that's one of the biggest things I think a lot of people miss. The hunting community is a small community. And you're trying to step out of and expand the hunting community 
to see, you know, it, it's not all about the kill. It's about the friendships and the relationships and the, the experiences that you have that don't actually have to have a successful hunt in a harvest sense. You can still have a successful hunt and, and not even have a harvest. Exactly right. Exactly right. Robbie, I have a question for you. I think we got about, I don't know, eight or ten minutes left of the of the show here. But so far, what has been your, I guess, most favorite or most memorable episode so far? Sure, they're all good, right? They are. They all have their own little. They all have their own little thing that touches you. And so I'll I'll say three three episodes. I'll start with my favorite. Then I'll talk about the two that probably impacted me the most. So Cuz is probably my favorite episode because I got to bring my dad with me. And a lot of people don't know this because you don't get to see the behind the scenes. But Cuz is one of those that we spent three days with. Essentially, we went up and spent three days. I, my father got to hunt with us i'd never hunted with my dad before so that what's that's what makes it special right is that i got to hunt with cuz with my father my father killed the doe um and then cuz's episode was just super special in that cuz was the first one that was an individual that was used to being on camera and he's an emotional guy to start with but those kind of guys you've really got to dig to get something new out of them, right? You have to really, you've got to work. And we got to the end of the episode and I didn't feel like I had what I wanted. And so I had a backup plan. I had his daughter, Lauren, give me some pictures that I thought would would help me. And if you watch Cuz's episode to start with, It's the only episode thus far where you actually hear me talk in the beginning and he's caught a turn from the camera. He's almost interview style because he's looking at me. He's not looking at the camera. And the first picture I gave him was a picture of him and his his brother and his dad when he was two and three. And when I gave him the picture that he looked at me and he looked at the picture and he looked at me and he said, where'd you get this? And I said, don't worry about where I got it. Tell me what the picture is. And pretty much he just broke him right then and there. And I knew we had been gold after that. So that's my, I would say that's my favorite episode because of my dad. And it was the first time that I realized that we could really interview and we could really break through to someone. The two others that are probably the most impactful was one from last season, Dr. Jeremy Austin. Um, did you guys either watch Jeremy's episode? I have not I seen don't that think one. I've seen that one. So Jeremy Austin was the bi-legged amputee, the guy who lost both his legs with an IED blow up in Afghanistan. I take that back. I did see part of that one. And I took him bird hunting, upland bird hunting in Georgia. And pretty much we walked eight miles the first day and like eight miles the next in sloppy red clay Georgia mud. And he took every step next to me. And just a warrior, man. And his episode turned out so good. He's just got such a such a cool voice and 
gravelly voice and the look and the feel of it was just awesome. And then the other one, it has yet to be released, and I don't know when this episode will release on your end, but it'll be the very next episode we drop in Blood Origins. We're going to drop an episode May the 16th, and that is going to be a guy called Braxton McCoy. Could you get more of an American name than Braxton McCoy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true that. And Braxton is a... Braxton could be from the 1940s Western cowboy era, and he was an, he's an army sergeant. He got blown up by a uh, suicide bomber in Fallujah, and um, is probably the most philosophically waxing individual I have ever met. You just give him a question, and you know, 20 minutes later, you're standing there staring at him with your mouth agape because you just can't believe what he's just you know, rambled off to you. And he switched from artificial intelligence to Buddhism to Christianity and how they all intersect in this one place of, you know, theological uh, stoicism or something like that. That's how Braxton speaks. And he's an army grunt. And we filmed him in the hills of the mountains of Idaho and as I said, his episode drops May 16th, and it's it's freaking good. It's so freaking good. And he'll be one of those episodes that we spoke with in the beginning that you're going to get to know Braxton a lot more before the episode drops. I've got a lot of content that I'm going to drop around Braxton. Um, so, yeah, those are the three. I know you didn't ask for three. You asked for one, but I gave you three. That's I'll all take right. It. <laughs> Well, Robbie, do before we we're coming down towards the end here, but before we get off, tell everybody how they can. What's the easiest way to find you? What's the easiest way to find the show? Uh, anybody that wants to follow along and and start keeping up. Blood Origins on any social media platform. Blood Origins on Instagram. Blood Origins on Facebook. Blood Origins on YouTube. Blood Origins on Amazon Prime. So if you're sitting there in the bed. Switch to Amazon Prime, you'll find us. Type us in. Uh, Blood Origins on Waypoint TV. Uh, some of our episodes are on Mossio Go. Yeah, we're everywhere. Just type in Blood Origins. No, no good reason to uh, to not watch. It's everywhere. Hey, we're <laughs> trying to get us everywhere right now. Trying. Well, Robbie, we, we enjoyed it, man. Great episode. Great talking with you. We're toward the end here, but everybody, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Outdoor Country Talk. Check with Jeremy. God bless. God bless. Well, ain't nothing like a southern air. Lord, to make you feel all right. I got the windows down. I got the radio 